Hey, episode 71 of the Nashville Artist Podcast is now out, featuring Lindsay Davis. Lindsay is a talented multidisciplinary artist, skill collector, and cat lover. Lindsay's artistic range is truly impressive, spanning sculptures, paintings, ceramics, installations, basket weaving, printmaking, drawing, botanical inks, and more. She's a sustainable artist who often incorporates elements from her garden into her creations, showcasing her ability to build from the ground up. Lindsay shares her passion for building sculptures and painting on canvas with a particular affinity for the visual aspects of gestaltism. She explores the concept that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, delving into perception, depth, and brain science in her thought-provoking work. Lindsay's art is a fascinating exploration of how the mind interprets and makes sense of our experiences. She provides insights into the creation process behind her captivating sculptural piece, Crevice. She also discusses her unique approach to fine art, using materials that have a historical function but repurposing them in non-functional ways. Her favorite venue is the Five Spot, and Red Arrow is her favorite art gallery. Liberation and grief are recurring themes in Lindsay's work, often presented without explicit explanations. She believes in allowing viewers to interpret her art freely, fostering connections and building bridges through her through their personal interpretations. Artistic influences such as Martin Puryear, Barbara Hepworth, Richard Serra, and Isamu Naguchi. Enjoy the podcast episode. So what have you been up to today? Um, well, I've had a very d- frustrating adult thing of uh, my washing machine broke. Oh, no. And it's still under, like, protection warranty. So I had like, spent an hour on the phone last week to get them to, like, make an appointment. And then they didn't know one showed up. And so now I had to then, uh, email them and get another appointment. And then when I called to confirm it, the lady was like, oh, that's not your appointment. That's just, um, we're going to call you and we'll make an appointment then. I'm like, okay, great. So I have my laundry in my car. I'm going to go to my friend's house after this viewer and this sucks. But it's frustrating. Is it a Whirlpool? No, LG. Oh, so it's like one of the fancier digital porcelain? Kind of, yeah, but it's not that fancy i just have a really small house oh yeah so it's a two-in-one so i think it's like a bit more complicated a, oh it's a two-in-one yeah but i dry my clothes outside in like the summertime Ooh. in springtime i have like a clothesline the smell but i love the smell of the sun it's the best warming the clothes it's the best um yeah so the winter time i'll just 
do that, the drier portion of it, but it's like not the best. I don't know. I feel like the technology isn't where it needs to be just yet. So yeah, two in one. I've never heard of those. Yeah, I had never until um, when I initially got a washer and dryer. I asked for like a smaller version of them for my space and out of the washer dryer one of them didn't work and I was like oh just replace that one they're like no you bought it in a pair so we got to take it back in a pair and I was like okay great and then the lady on the phone was like have you ever thought of a two-in-one I was like I didn't know those existed I did research and I got one of them did you go to like Best Buy to get this no Home Depot oh uh, um, yeah uh, eh. yeah and, but I did get a warranty which is why I'll be able to get it fixed for free but if they ever come. come. <laughs> Do you have uh, any roommates? No, I oh, just nice. live by myself. That's nice. It's it's great. Yeah, I have you, a cat. Uh, they'll say, "Do you have a cat?" Yeah. Nice. What's okay. its name? Toast. Toast. Yes, he was found in a car engine. So when I got him, he um, toast. yeah, he was toast. He had a lot of burns on his back and his head oh. and like scabs. Oh. And uh, yeah, he healed up fine, and he's super happy. Um, he, when he was growing up, because um, he's still he's like not even a year old yet, but uh-huh. my, um, my other cat, Bruiser, passed away in November. So they were really loving on each other and became really close. Oh, I love cats. Yeah, me too. I was, yeah, I was really sad about Bruiser, but I still have toast. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I don't so know sad. what it is with cats climbing up in the engines or whatever, because that's how mm-hmm. my, one of my childhood cats was found that way. Yeah, they just try to, I think it's like to get warm, yeah, Yeah. and then the car turns on, and then the ignition, and then, like, if if someone doesn't notice the meows, then they'll, like, go, and then the cat's stuck in there burning. Oh. It's really scary. Yeah. Be careful. Yeah, that's how one of our cat, I can't remember which one, but, like, my dad came home from work one day and was like, I have this cat because it was in my engine. Oh, yeah. And then it became one of our own. Yeah. Wow. But we had a lot of cats growing up. Yeah. So sweet. I love the cats in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I always try to pet them. Yeah. Uh, I just love to watch them sunbathe. Oh, my God. With their little bellies out. Oh, oh and God. they just look so content. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my God. Just to be a cat, like, in the sun on the side of, a, like, uh, on a tree or something. I'm walking down the street, and this little cat's just in its little garden, just... Mm. Yeah, mm, they're just like I want to squeeze. Them. I know they're just like wild, fluffy <laughs> animals. Like I don't know, they're so cute. Like I, I thought I was thinking about um, like big cats, like jaguar, like cats that are like out in the mountain lines. That's the yeah. proper one. And uh, but then the, the domestic, like they're not fully domesticated, but the house cats, they're like out, or the stray cats, or whatever. Um, they're like our mini version of those like wild big cats. They are. They're so sweet. I used to watch my cat hunt. Oh, yeah. I remember I found one of my cats named Caramel. I was like going to find him and bring him inside because mm-hmm. it was nighttime. Yeah. And he was laying at the base of this tree and he had three moles with him and he was just laying there and as they would try to crawl away, he would just go and bring it back. <laughs> and I'm like, Caramel. That's going what on. What a bully. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm just playing with them. Yeah. That's but, so cute. I know. I know. But um, we'll get started here. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Nashville Artist. I'm Jordan, and today Lindsay Davis is here. Hi. Awesome. Thank you for coming <laughs> over and doing this. Yes, my pleasure. So, where are you from? 
uh, originally uh, born and raised in New Jersey, mm-hmm. northern uh, New Jersey, but uh, like New York State was my backyard, kind of really north. Um, not the New Jersey a lot of people know about, but there was a lot of hiking and land preserves and whatnot. Oh, yeah. I've heard there's a lot of parts of New Jersey that are really mountainous. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I grew up. Um, and But it was great because I had like access to the city and the shore and the mountains. Um, yeah. Where I'm originally from. Do you have any siblings? Yeah. Uh, I have an older sister. She's still in New Jersey. Um, she's a hairdresser. Oh, sweet. What is her name? Blair. Blair. That's cool. Is she, you said she's a hairdresser. Mm-hmm. Is she like also into like art and music and stuff? Not really. Um, yeah, it's just, she's very um, opposite of me, if you can imagine. Uh, very typical uh, Northeast um, with the accent and a bit shorter than me and very blonde and um, likes her gym and her coffee and like, you know, her, uh, she always um, just loves her routines and it's very New Jersey and I love her very much that's amazing <laughs> yeah very, very it's, new jersey the routines yeah um god i like if you ever watch that show jersey shore yeah. where they do like gym laundry tanning or yeah. something it's like that but she doesn't do the tanning so i think she she went through that phase is that already. pretty typical that kind of routine mm. in new jersey i have a good ratio i'd say but um not everyone <laughs> um, yeah not everyone's jack and tan yeah, no. No, no. A lot of people uh, are also like pissed off and just, yeah. Rude. Sullen. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know, a little hard ass, but it's not so bad. Right, right. So, what about your parents? Are they also? Uh, they were art and music. Um, they were in New. They were in New Jersey, but both uh, my parents have passed. Oh. So yes, but my my father had coffee shops when I was growing up, oh. and he really loved um, like. He would like smoke a bunch of weed and like uh, melt wax candles on like garden gargoyles and like do weird sculptural stuff uh, like that. And my mom went to uh, FIT for photography back in like, I don't know, the 70s. Um, And yeah, so they were always creative. And um, when I was growing up, I like was always working and managing those coffee shops that my my father had. And I would eventually uh, grow into managing like the weekend music scene. So, um, and my father always made sure there was like a jazz night and then like a local, like alternative or Americana act playing. Um, Yeah. But yeah, they definitely had their like fingers in creative realms. Yeah. I Mm -hmm. love the idea of dripping wax on gargoyles. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was great. Um, Because people are, yeah, well, we'll look at them. Where'd the wax come from? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He was the best. Miss him very much. That's awesome. Yeah. What, um, so what were you into as a little kid? Oh, um, well, when, uh, when I was growing up, my mother put me into ceramics class at two years old it was called mommy and me and it was at uh this place called wharton dyke gallery in i think it's like wyckoff or oh no midland park new jersey yes um and it was uh, an old pottery studio attached to like an abandoned train 
that was like still next to like an act an, a working track so like the pottery studio was the old like station building and then the gallery was the old train and wow. it was really cool and um yeah i just remember always like using my hands and making weird stuff and it wasn't until i was making a mess i'm like rolling out a bunch of clay and just covered in wet clay and my mom's like what are you doing i'm like i'm making a log and then she's like oh okay cool. and she's <laughs> like oh anything is anything i can uh dictate how i want others to perceive reality and get away with shit so <laughs> i thought that was like a really profound moment in my understanding of like what uh making something could mean towards like molding reality in a certain way um but at the time I just was getting away with making a mess. So I didn't think about it as anything other than that until I was able to like relive that memory enough times to be like, wow, that was actually like a really profound experience. Um, but yeah, just always uh, put in, I was, I stayed in ceramics until I was 14 and then got into photography and then um, I was put into like advanced oil painting and ended up in, um, Interlochen, Maine at the Interlochen Arts Academy for advanced painting and drawing. And um, that was during high school. So after that, I was kind of like, I guess I'm just going to seek out a career in art. And my parents were like on board, but like not 100%. So out of all the schools I got into, um, they were only really wanted me to go to the museum school in Boston because it was a loophole to get a degree from Tufts. Oh. Yeah, so I took all my studio classes at the museum school, but then my academic classes at Tufts, and then you just walk away with a Tufts degree, and you don't really apply to Tufts, but you got to get a degree, so it's always kind of cool. <laughs> wow. So, like, what first got you into art is ceramics at two years old. Yeah, yeah, just, like, using my hands, and uh, I still have, like, a bunch of those pieces I made. Um, and after, you know, after your parents die, all the things that you've given them your entire life get given back to you. So then I have like all the weird ashtrays and the weird things I made that are just like lumps of clay and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, there I have like um, a, cup, uh, a couple of turkey candle holders that my mother and I made. And the one that my, mo my mom made is like really nice. And mine is just like... <laughs> and it's just so cute, uh, and uh, yeah, I treasure those pieces. So, yeah. pinch pots. Yeah, a lot of pinch pots and rolling out. And um, I remember they had like um, one of those things that can flatten out. Oh yeah. And so we would make like just a lot of weird mugs. Like I have a mug that's looks like a fish, like with like the fin is the handle. And uh, then she made like a Valentine's Day looking one with hearts all over, and then the big heart as the handle. And uh, yeah, and these aren't like big, like overly like big mugs. These are like regular size mugs like that. Right. Like, and that's the kind of you know no frills. Like you don't want to drink something that's going to be cold halfway through. So they were like functional. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I like that that whole idea of making it artistic, but also you can use it. Yeah. Yeah, I still have um, I still have a few, but I don't I don't use them. I put plants in them now because <laughs> the plants then have their own meanings too. So it's just like drenched in metaphor. Right, yeah. and I, I love pottery. I did it in elementary school and high school. Uh, here's a few of my little things. I, I love them. <laughs> wow, that's so cute. Yeah, it's like wow. the Cookie Monster. Yeah, and there's glass in there. Yeah, yeah. Of glass in there. I love and, that stuff. Yeah, I put a little world in his mouth. I love like, that. 
road and uh, try to make it all trippy and metaphorical and shit. Yeah. And this is just like a um, lantern. I, that's beautiful. That's. I bet it looks really cool when it's all lit up. Yeah, it gets extremely hot, so I guess yeah. I just keep the top off. Yeah, or like maybe like a jar. Yeah, put a jar in. Or like, a, like just off to the side. Oh. Yeah. And so it can reflect through it or whatever. Nice. Yeah. Mm. Eventually, I'll get a wheel mm -hmm. and, and be able to do it because I would like to have a kiln and a wheel. And yeah. Well, you can go over to like Elephant Gallery, like Buchanan Arts and stuff. They have um, access to that stuff. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. My friend Ash, um, her studio is over there. And after my uh, cat bruiser passed, I went over and um, made his urn. And so I think it might be ready today or tomorrow from the uh, kiln, but. Yeah, so just make some friends in the ceramic world here, and then you can do whatever you want to do. It's really, it's really great. Everyone's so nice. That sounds amazing. I'm probably gonna do that. Yeah. Um, or so, even like you can uh, take a private class with her too, and have her like do a yeah, little teach teach that's true. situation. I would like that. Yeah. Get a re tutorial of mm -hmm. using the wheel and everything. Yeah. Oh yeah. Buchanan Arts. They have a lot of access to that. It's really so, great spot. Buchanan Arts. Yeah, so we're in North Nashville, behind uh, Elephant Gallery. Okay, I'll have to go to both of these places. Yes. Um, so when you were younger, did you have like any early influences as far as artists you really liked? And you're like, wow, I really like their work. I want to be more like them. Mm, um, I would say like the, when I was in high school, it was a lot of like de Kooning and like really gestural, figural um, manipulations. I really enjoyed uh, the like the big gestural paint splatters and use of like the whole body and mark making of like just huge, like big work. So the movements are really big when you have to make the works. Um, and when I got into, when I was an undergrad, my drawing mentor, Bill Flynn, uh, taught me about um, like scavenging or foraging for wood for charcoal. And so I have these like really old branches, really old and long branches that all burned down. And I remember I was really inspired by him once because he was doing a lecture and it was real quiet and he was talking and out of nowhere, he just like slams this burnt log on the big paper behind him and drags it down. And it was just like such like a, like visceral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was just like, yes. And then um, I ended up be, like taking all his classes and being his TA and like, I still, I, we did an art trade and I have one of his pieces now and he retired in my like senior thesis year. I was so bummed out, but uh, he's still alive now doing great. But that was a huge inspiration um, because he would, like I would always take his figure classes, but he, uh, he was a hard ass. Like he would go up to a first year students and he didn't like the way they were um, showing their respect for the pose that the model was doing. And they'd be like, why are you here? Why did you come to art school? Uh, because they would just be like looking at the paper, not looking at the model, just going outlining and not seeing like the shapes of the shadows and the muscles and actually like doing those lines within the body. And um, he had this model and she was um, like a retired like, ballerina. She was really much older, like maybe in her 80s. And so she had like, still had muscle definition, but her skin just sagged off. 
and it was gorgeous. And she would get into these crazy positions. And then if he didn't like how we were drawing it, he would make us get into that position and understand like what it took, like the muscles. And then like, you really understand like, oh, all the, all the weight is on that leg and the muscles look like you need to understand the skeletal and the muscle system to really like show that respect for the figure and the body. But then once you understand those placements, you can just get it like just really quickly. And that's um, what he was like trying to get us to understand. It's like the muscle memory of like our, all our bodies are like the same in a certain ratio. And so when we have all our weight in a certain way, it's like that's the weight line and how strong that line is. And then understanding how your mark making can dictate like the feeling of a pose, like a sensual pose, a hard pose, or, like a soft, like delicate sleeping, like all different ways and how you can use your mark making to initiate those feelings. I feel like I'm going off on a tangent now. I'm sorry. When you say mark making, what do you mean? Yeah. Like um, Mark making as in like, using your chuckle or pens or whatever um, in ways that create different marks that elude different uh, textures and space, spatial um, play. Like over, like if you were to do like a, a spray paint or an airbrush line and then do like a hard line over it, that spray paint airbrush line is going to be perceived further back in space because it's so soft and drifting out but then a hard line is defined it's in front it's in focus and uh just understanding how the brain uses the eye to solve the puzzle of perception uh is is like the first thing to understand like how mark making puts it all together because you're trying to create depth on a flat surface understanding optics mm -hmm. yeah yeah and anatomy of the body yeah and yeah and then over time that um yeah, I was like TAing a lot and um, I was working with the figure in such a way that I was using um, objective figural reference to talk about more subjective feelings. Like I'll make a figure with like a big asshole and like four legs curling in on itself with like no head. And this is how you felt rather than how you looked and the body that you felt like you were occupying. Um, but after like, doing so many like having access to the studio after hours like in uh teeing with uh printmaking and drawing um i remember pulling a mono print one day because i was bored and i stared at it for two weeks because it like had this vibration happening that that made me see a space but there obviously wasn't a space it was very simple like blocked mono print and uh i was like i need to do like a hundred of these to like see like is this my is this real or is this just like a fluke for this one like composition and so i did and there was something happening and i realized that i didn't need to use the objective figural reference to talk about like perspective in that way of the self because the self is the viewer as the figure i mean so uh yeah then it became like just perspective perception as like the figural input and then understanding space as the figure. So then, uh, yeah, they got a bit more abstract and uh, I was trying to figure out why is my brain thinking it sees depth and space in something that uh, is flat and it's just made up of like random mark making kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I did a lot of research and I found this German psychological theory called Gestaltism. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. And um, yeah, the sum of the whole is other than the parts. That's like basically the quote. And it goes, it's such like a broad reaching um, concept, but I focus on like the visual aspect of it. And so when you look at anything, each item has its own identity, but when it all comes together, it's something else. Like it's the whole picture of what you're seeing. So when you look at something like objectively, you're like the oranges have their own identity, the bananas have their own, like all those things there. But then that is what encompasses the countertop. That is the countertop. But everything is its own identity too. And so when you're looking at like a more uh, abstract thing, uh, your brain is trying to be like, what am I looking at? What is this puzzle I'm trying to solve? So it uses the mark making to be like, okay, that, that looks like that. So it must be further back. And then it figures out like with these very um, obscure pieces of the puzzle, how a space can be created. And so, yeah, each mark making, each thing can allude to a different sense of space. And um, I think that really, that really got me for a while. And it still gets me to this day. I still work heavily in it, but um, I think I got, I'm just getting more specific in a certain way. But yeah, it was after pulling that mono print, I kind of just delved into the deep end of uh, like perception and depth and brain science. Cause a lot of this stuff that I've read is like written by people that are still alive today or like within the last 20 years or something like that. It's all very new. So uh, it's quite interesting because no one's really talking about like the electrons and how the electrons in your brain form these pathways. And that is how you uh, see something on the horizon line. And it could have all these different identities before you actually see it. Like, is that a body? Is that a dog? Is that a trash can? Going oh, I love a plastic bag. But all the things that your brain thought it was before you actually saw what it was are from previous experiences because it's trying to figure out what is it? How can I solve it? Like, the survival mechanism and it's just so interesting and i'm so drawn to that kind of shit yeah that's amazing so like in middle school and high school like did you i'm guessing you did art in school and like outside of school yeah yeah i took a lot of um all the art classes i could and then always did like after school something like um there was a, an art academy in ridgewood new jersey i forgot what it's called but um, that's where I like did some traditional, that's where I was traditionally trained with oil painting. And um, I was just like, meh, <laughs> like, meh, like, that's cool. And I loved it. It's beautiful. But I just needed something like that got my brain busy a little bit more. So I kind of dabbled with a lot of different um, things during that time. And it was my um, high school art professor, art teacher, um, Bill Kustra, who like kind of took me under his wing in a way. And like, I took all his classes and he pushed me like go to art school and get my portfolio. He taught me how to take slides of my works before even digital cameras were a thing. Like, um, yeah, so it always was, I was always known as like an artsy person, but I was very, I was a hard ass too. Cause I was like, I'm not calling myself an artist because who am I to say I'm an artist? Huh. So I was just like such a fucking, I don't know hard-headed you know when you're a teen and early 20s you're really angsty yeah <laughs> right mm -hmm. yeah that's a, i'm against the man yeah <laughs> exactly so why would you say you're drawn to physical 
in like visual art? Um, well, yeah, so this, I'll tell a little story if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so, you know, when you're in like your formative, very early formative years, like t kindergarten and all those very early times where uh, the teacher then tells your parents like what they've noticed about your early development and stuff like that. And my whole shtick was um, I would never explain anything in show and tell. I would bring something in and gesture towards it and be like, why do I need to explain how cool this is? You can see it. And um, yeah, there was like this unspoken thing that I, uh, I had where my parents didn't even tell me about it until like high school that um, I was really bad at like, Comp like comprehending or like sharing things that I thought like to me they thought it was like a I was an unable to but it was like more why do I need to like you have eyes and you can see and you can feel it and you can play with this thing and you can see how cool it is so it was like uh, there was this lack of communication that I had and I felt like um, my parents always pushing me to make art and stuff was like this way to bridge that gap so I could like kind of figure out what what was happening in here and everything once I get it out there kind of like vomit or shit or something like that like it has it's gonna come out either yeah. way um but yeah I think it was um honestly because of like a learning development issue <laughs> like why do I need to explain this yeah it's already glorious as it is exactly and then who am I to define this Right, box it in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like at such a young age, I like, I still I felt no, like that. No boundaries. Exactly. And I remember, gosh, I don't know if this is allowed on the podcast, but I remember um, my uh, co my college boyfriend. We um, took a bunch of mushrooms one day, and we were just gonna like draw and make some art. And when we were like, yes, yeah, let's get some paper on the wall. And he just put like a sheet of paper on the wall. And I was like, no. And I put a roll of paper and I rolled it down and rolled it out. And I was like, it's, we're drawing everything. And, uh, cause I didn't understand like drawing just, no, it's, it's where everything, it's the, the expanse of it. And, uh, yeah. Little story. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I like that story you said with Bill Flynn or whatever, slamming the piece of wood, burnt wood. <gasps> Yeah, <laughs> it became a performance as well. As exactly, a piece of art that was being made. Yeah, yeah, he was um, such an inspirational professor. I felt very lucky to have had have had him as like a, a professor and also like a colleague uh, boss because I was his assistant for a few classes, and um, it was great. That's awesome. So, how do you now? Do you have routines, or how do you develop your artistic mm -hmm. skills? Um, I would say I have routines where I'm in the studio and I'm trying out different materials or processes that um, I'm not fully ready to like make a piece all about. A few a few years ago, I excuse me worked for a carpenter and um, well, I come from a family of builders, so I always kind of understood the fundamentals of that. But I wanted to understand like to make something actually functional, like legally functional too. So I like uh, worked for a, a carpenter for a summer. We built like sheds and decks and um, fences and uh, like this big pergola thing um, with a roof and all this stuff. And 
um, doing that, we had to like pour concrete and like use tools that at the time I wasn't like 100% like confident in, uh, in myself working with them. Um, and because uh, I kind of got like a hold my hand through the process of it um, and how to make something like functional and traditional and make it work. Um, understand the, I just got the understanding of the basics and then um, was able to like have a bit more confidence in doing it on my own and working with these new materials in my practice. And um, yeah, I think it was just from asking to be asking for help, asking to be taught and putting myself in a situation where I would be taught how to do it because I'm working for someone who does it kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, or I'll just be in the studio and just experiment too. Why not go to Turnip Green, see whatever they have cooking and then work with something new I haven't thought of before. Yeah, you have mentors. Wait, do I have mentors? No, I'm just saying like different people you studied under. Yeah. Oh yeah. They um yeah, I think of a lot of a lot of folks as mentors. I've gone down a lot of different pathways of um artistic experience via like mentors and choices and yada yada yada. Um and I think we all need to do that to like figure out like what process or skill we really want to delve dive into the deep end with. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like yeah, sculpture. Painting is my bread and butter. <laughs> nice. So do you have like favorite artists of all time? Of all time? Hmm. Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, Mar uh, Martin Perrier, uh, he is amazing. Um, does a lot of these like seed looking shape pieces and he can make this like the wood look like ebony. It's so beautiful. Um, and there's this piece he did that um, it's, it's pretty well known for I think it's on permanent display at MoMA in New York but it's like this long piece of wood that he split in half and just went like this with and put a bunch of stairway like a like a ladder like little rungs in it and just because of the perspective it's like looked like a stairway for like a ladder forever in space but it's just how the your perspective is when you're standing underneath it uh he's really known for that work and I'm pretty sure he was in like represented America in like a Venice Biennial or some some shit like that. I don't uh, know him. Um, uh, Barbara Hepworth. She is an amazing sculptor with wood and stone and uses the figure in this like beautifully gestural and um, delicate way. Like just beautiful curves and like her use of like holes and voids within her pieces. Um, something I am drawn to a lot. Um, Richard Serra, because of his, like, um, he cut, he came, he like, grew up um, in, like, the ship, shipbuilding area in, like, New York and Brooklyn or some shit. Um, and so all that steel really inspired his work. And you can see that now, uh, which I really love being able to draw, like, childhood experience to, like, what they do now. Um, hmm. uh, Noguchi. A Japanese American um, sculptor, and he has a, his own museum in Queens. Um, his use of like stone and wood, and then how he deals with the pedestal is uh, really cool because there was a whole time in art where like the pedestal was like, is this part of the piece or is the pedestal part of the gallery? 
if it's a necessary thing for showing the work, then shouldn't it be thought of as well? And so it can, it's like the theory of like the Guggenheim, like the Guggenheim is an artistic uh, architectural, architectural masterpiece in and of itself, but how can that then hold art that needs to hold its own too? Like, and you can't see the art without seeing it in relation to the architectural masterpiece that is the museum. So it's like this dichotomy of like art within art, but they have nothing to do with each other. Um, I got what I was saying. No worries. <laughs> favorite, favorite artist. Yes. Okay. Sorry. 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 Yes. Yeah. So Noguchi used um, like the pedestal within his pieces as like part of the piece in and of itself. Um, and I really thought like with what was happening at that time, it was beautiful. I love his work. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. How did you start working at the Red Narrow Gallery? Uh, working or, with them? Working with them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, when I first moved to town in, oh, wow, like winter, uh, like December of 2014. Uh, damn. A long time ago. Uh, I, um, I moved down... Um, and by like a couple, only a couple friends in town. Of course, they were musicians because, like, at that time, the art scene here was rather small, but like super supportive and amazing. And um, someone that my friend was playing with one night, uh, uh, their partner was, uh, was the owner of Red Arrow when it was over at um, Riverside Village next to Fond Object. Oh yeah, and. I remember going to a couple shows there and yeah, Katie and I really hit it off and just talked a lot about art and um, became really good friends. And yeah, then I just started showing with them and I kind of, I think our uh, relationship just has like developed further and further where like I still show with them every couple years and yeah, they're like my family to me. It's really cool. Um, because they've known me for so long that I feel like they really understand my work and my practice and my concepts and like, um, like the soul passion stuff when it comes to making work and not just about like making money. It's like right. what I'm passionate about with like the messages I'm trying to say with the pieces. Um, yeah. And so it was just like doing the hang. And I don't even know if that's a possible thing anymore in Nashville, but I remember, uh, yeah, you just hung, you just hung around and then your face gets more recognizable and then you strike up conversations and then people get to know you and yeah, it takes time. But, um, I feel like that's, yeah, it was really, really great friendship. I made super early on and very lucky to have done so. Yeah. When you said work with them, what, what does that look like or what do you do? Yeah. Oh, well, I just, they represent me, um, with the state with regionally. Um, so I show with them and then they get like, they store my larger pieces and have curate, not curators, um, collectors come and check out my work and they put it in front of the eyes of people who have the space to buy work because a lot of the pieces are big. And so the walls need to be big for them to go on. And so they have like the connections to like get the people who have those walls to see the work and um, yeah. Just they like definitely give a lot of opportunity and provide like such a community setting for like all the other artists that they represent. And we all just are good friends. So it's kind of, um, I don't know, really supportive in that way and feel lucky. Nice. Yeah. So how did your um, sculpture, sculpture called uh, Crevice 
come about? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so that was for Artville. Uh, and that was the, like the whole inaugural first art fest that um, Nashville put on. Uh, and I think they got it funded for three years, which is really cool. I hope it happens. It keeps happening. But Clevis um, was my idea for a large sculpture that would be an outdoor sculpture for that event. And um, it was, or still is, it's in my driveway now, but it's a big white, like it's about six feet tall and nine feet long and four feet wide. And um, it's called crevice because when like there's a fissure or an earthquake and the, uh, what is known shifts, there's it's what's lost. The crevice is a piece of earth that, is falls into the into that fissure into that crack and with that neighborhood experienced a lot of change and a lot of loss of like actual accessible studio space because it's supposed to be one of the creative hubs of nashville but there's no accessibility really left over there and um so it was funny of like what are they trying to show with this art fest is has been lost so um, I decided to make a crevice. And so it was like a piece of earth uh, removed and then put on a pedestal, which it really wasn't put on pedestal. It was on the ground with a, like an island, like of sand, surrounded by like a sea of sand around it. Um, just so it like had some differentiation between grass and sculpture. But it was meant to be like something lost from that neighborhood that we're trying to, you know, reenact or look at and not forget about as forces with a lot more money than us artists come in and try to deem like that that theirs like you know it's 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 getting lost so I, I wanted to kind of do a little bit of like I don't know those are all like yeah fuck you guys too um yeah but because it was white and neon um I was thinking maybe I should have named it crevasse because a crevasse is the ice mm. rather and a crevice is the earth. It's like when uh, like when an ice sheet, like um like when if you're in like on a glacier and or uh yeah, there's like a big split in the ice and you can get like lost if you fall down there. But yeah, that's a crevasse and then a crevice is so it was just like funny little play on words. I, I like the play on word stuff. Yeah. So like your negative space initial steps nicostaltism. Mm -hmm. That came about from, like, the mind, like, being able to make your mind scramble to figure out meaning within kind of random yeah. objects. Yeah, like that monoprint I pulled um, when I was just, like, hanging out in the print shop after working with the figure for so long. Um, that is the print that kind of, like, started it all. Um, and it's called uh, Feeling Aloof Next to Sarah. Uh, because it's when I was like super obsessed with Richard Serra and it just reminded me of his work. Um, and I just thought it was a play. It was a nice play on work. Because I was like feeling aloof next to Sarah, feeling distant, feeling like uh, I'm trying to figure something out next to his work or something, or like understand who I am adjacent to these gigantic steel pieces. So I don't know. That's why that title became to be. <laughs> Yeah, I really like the on your website the on that page the second one down on the left. It's got the like big gap 
looks like a canyon. And it's um it's one of your gestaltism ones, mm -hmm. but um I like that one a lot because you can see the depth, like that there's a hole there or it looks like a hole. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wish I knew exactly which one you were talking about. No but thank you. I should have had a picture. Oh, it's okay. Um but what would you say like your overall art represents? Um I feel like it just perception ex like using experience to un or yeah you using experience to understand perception or like figure out what it means to be human in this present day with what I have experienced and not feeling so alone in those experiences because we all like kind of put ourselves in a corner when it comes to experiencing stuff either like and unfortunately, like I've had some like pretty shitty experiences with just like loss and stuff and grappling with grief um, has been like a big part of my practice as of lately. So because of that, I under I know that like it's a part of being alive is death and everyone is going to experience loss in their life. So being able to make work that helps me figure out what I'm thinking about as I work my way through that also builds connection with other people who don't understand how to navigate through loss. Because um, I felt like when I was younger and my father passed, I used it as like fuel to like keep going and work harder and get my degree and like push myself and do something because I need to tell his story. But then after my mom died, it was kind of like, I don't want to do anything. I, I want to like give up. But um, it was very, it was less about, um, using it as fuel and more about like, why, why me? And I have to do like this 180 of like, no, it's fuel like this. You have to, you have to be able to see a silver lining in whatever happens and uh, just be thankful that like you're able to look at it that way and not continue just spiraling downward and try to use it as a bridge to connect with other people. And I think um, once you lose like, you're the people that made you in a way you lose like this uh, safety net of connection. So when you make work that is trying to like connect with people who are still are also seeking that understanding and navigation, it builds those bridges in a really profound way um, just because it makes people not feel alone in that. Cause it's so easy to just be alone when you're experiencing all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say, kind of on the same line here, what would you say inspires your creativity? Mm. Hmm. I would say, uh, hmm. there, well, I guess it depends on if I'm working on um, like a, a stretched canvas piece or a sculptural piece um, where the canvas pieces are usually um, me problem solving in a, visual format um that is very much based on like uh composition where then sculptural it's problem solving in a way of understanding process and material so i'll create works on stretch canvas that have a create 
I create a conversation with myself or I'm like, do a little mark here and then look at it and then do a little mark there and look at it and see what dialogues come up between uh, that composition. And then think about like, what am I thinking about right now? Like, how does this have to do with what I'm actually experiencing with life? But then with the sculptures, I, I draw it out in a sketchbook and I know exactly like, I want to make this shape. I want to make something with this material or this texture. And then it's the problem solving of, okay, how do I make this happen? And a lot of that has to do with um, like metaphorical shape associations with like, with when it comes to sculpture, like curves against uh, straights versus like voids. And then the use of um, material, like I, I use a lot of natural material. I, I grow the grasses that I'll put in my sculpture. And I taught myself how to do basket weaving like seven years ago because of all of my farming and gardening that I do because it's like a functional skill. And um, then I was like, why am I not using these skills that I taught myself for like function in my practice? Uh, so I feel like more lately for sculptures, it's figuring out how I can use these functional skills in the fine art sculpture and fine art is defined by non-function like you, fine art can't have a function what is the function of fine art you can't drink out of it you can't eat food with it and uh a lot of that um so i like to like, figure out like using the, the what's the metaphor of using materials that are uh, historically used for function in a non-functional way and then what other metaphor does that mean as a female doing it when I go to Home Depot, the amount of weird looks I get from the people who work there when I ask for information about one concrete versus another, and then they're like, well, what are you doing? And then tell them, and then it's just, oh, we don't sell that, or we don't work with that. It's like, no, you just don't, you don't respect or know what I'm talking about, or you don't have like, so it's, it's funny, I kind of feel like Ron Swanson when I go into Home Depot, because I'm just like, I know more than you, don't look at me, don't talk to me, because um, they just, uh, that's not helpful there's people there sometimes yeah i don't know what got me on this tangent i'm sorry <laughs> this happens a lot i'll just uh -huh. i was just saying what inspires your creativity oh yeah yeah so just uh the materials uh, playing with materials and then with the sculpture um and then also how i just creating something and then figuring out like why why do i think i see what i see and all that comes with like understanding what I'm going to see with it, but that doesn't mean that's what it is. Right. So I think it's a lot like if you think about Roy Shack tests, oh, like yeah. I'm going to see one thing, um, but who am I to say then that is the definition of what it is? Cause it's out there. I made a physical thing and it is now in the world. I can't, my perception of it is not going to then bleed into your perception of it. You're going to see it as a whole different thing and how wonderful that is. Like, yeah, why would I ever want to box that in? And I think that's a big inspiration to me too. Yeah, making something and then letting someone else interpret it Yeah, and being free of the interpretation. Because that's where the bridges are built because I want to hear someone else and what they have to say. And then they all hear what I have to say. And then it's like, whoa, there's like a connection there. And I think there's, uh, I can go off on a whole uh venting venting about like how museums like give out headphones 
and then they have someone in your ear telling you exactly how you need to look at a painting or a work because of the context. And it's like, well, what about how you view it because of who you are existing in this present world with your perception, your experience, get that first and then read it because like you shouldn't be like tunnel vision into how you should perceive something, especially in art because that is like such a broad thing that's just human and being human is so much more than just one definition right kind of bastardize it when you explain everything exactly yeah okay cool how would you best describe the type of artist you are oh um i don't even know how to describe any artist um oh gosh a little manic a little, um, yeah, manic maybe. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I, I like to gain a lot of skills and then figure out how to use that in my practice. So a collector, yeah. collector of skills. Um, but also sometimes I don't feel like the whatever control I have is completely on me. I feel like sometimes stuff just needs to come out and I don't have control over it. And sometimes those things that need to come out aren't even meant for me. They're meant for me to put out there and for other people to see because there's so many other things happening in the world and not my own perception of the world is like, that's not the be all end all. So I think sometimes I feel like maybe I'm just the God, vessel is such a freaking ethereal word, but like I don't want to say I'm a vessel. <laughs> but I feel like the conduit. The conduit or the tool. Like I'm just the thing that the messenger. Messenger. <laughs> don't shoot me. Yeah. Something. <laughs> I don't the know. envoy. Uh yeah. Maybe some some yeah. Something like that. But uh not not to like I don't want to like put myself on like in no in no way not to put myself on a pedestal or anything, but yeah just to make something and put it out there because like it just needs to be put out there and sometimes it'll be seen sometimes it won't be seen but the fact that this thing had to be put out there and i had felt this need that didn't feel like i had a choice in the matter yeah that's and all all that you do maybe makes you you a multidisciplinary artist Oh, a hundred percent. Like I have a huge, I'm a garden right outside my studio and I grow stuff that goes then back into the studio or then I, the wood shavings and go right back into the garden. Um, Recycle. Yeah. I've tried to be really sustainable. I like, um, many years ago, I like made a bunch of, um, black walnut ink that I still use to this day. Wow. Uh, cause I made like so much that, yeah. And it, um, it doesn't go bad, but it like gets a film on top. And wow. uh, I found that over time, the brown that it is gets more cool, like cooler toned as it ages, which I'm really, I like that a lot. So um, yeah, and I have this book on um, natural botanical dyeing. And I took a class with uh, the Tennessee Weavers Guild, which were these ladies like in like their 80s and 90s. And it was really adorable. Um, and we just died with botanicals and they taught and we learned how to like use like iron and then eucalyptus leaves and then bathe it in like a bath with like pennies and like all different like mortons, which are like what you put in the boiling water to then elicit darker tannins from the botanicals. It's just 
so cool and so interesting and then how like you can then use those things in your practice like this is so cool because all those things were made in a functional way for um like indigenous peoples and like for their own survival or lifestyle and then um how we've forgotten it and how we can bring back these functional um necessary skills and then like use them as like skill sharing and then use it in your practice and just how much more beautiful that is than just like buying pigment or buying paper i don't know like buying acrylic or whatever yeah yeah when you can make your own paint yeah or just try or just get some dirt and rub it on like yeah just it's there's so much more potential and metaphor um when you figure out how to do something from the ground up yeah. rather than just use money to just get this and get this and yeah. right I, don't know. I like the uh 360 degree i want to be part of all of it right it's yeah. like taking a piece of paper and burying it in dirt or scrubbing coffee grounds all over yeah. it make it look old yeah antique yeah. yeah yeah just put something else in there that can like yeah, have some like have something to say that you're not in fully control of. Yeah. I, and that's a big part of my process too. Like my paintings, um, I'll spray paint the back, I'll stretch the canvas and then I spray paint the back of the painting. So there's a bleed through that I, that happens that I can't control. And then once I turn it over, I'll use my big branches that I burn for charcoal to then make more marks. And because of the distance and the uh, imperfections and the wood burning, like little pieces will fall off and catch in other ways. And, iridescency will come out little browns and it's just there's a um a lack of control i have in those first marks that then create the problem that's then me solving then everything else is me solving that problem um but yeah because i don't want to it's so intimidating to look at a fresh canvas to me because i build, yeah yeah the whole thing is like i started with moleskin sketchbooks and i was like i'm gonna spend like 50 dollars on this goddamn sketchbook i don't want to ruin it and so i like go in the middle and just like scribble all over and then uh, use that bleed through to initiate the next drawing use the bleed through and then it just kept going and that's how the sketchbooks would get filled up and then i realized like oh I'm, that's how i feel most comfortable making work or starting a piece so how can i do this with my paintings and then i was like okay bleed through yeah and um yeah uh, from there it's just problem solving whatever shit just just happened and i have to then figure out how do i perceive a space from these marks that i could not really control so yeah like, that's really fun to me i really like the whole idea of buying moleskin journals and then you're like they're too nice i need to fuck them up oh so yeah then, completely so then oh i won't feel bad about doing yes. whatever i want exactly and if you get the ones that are like super thin paper you can get these really nice bleed throughs with the oil based sharpies and those like i remember during uh one of my shows i think it was one of my first shows at red arrow um i had like a table up on the second floor uh with like my like two two or three years worth of sketchbooks um, and I, I changed them to the table and I had a thing that said don't take any photos of these because these are sketchbooks like there's things written in there and like I don't care if like someone reads them but like I would rather no one to, to document that shit um, but it was just to like show like how like not not provocative but just like how much I was doing and how that process was so embedded in my practice um, yeah, and then I figured out how can I do this large scale. Wow. So that's how it turned out with the paintings. But yeah, uh, moleskins are way too nice. You have to mess them up a little bit. Yeah, blemish them some. Yeah. 
Okay, awesome. What would you say, or what would yeah, what would you say are your strengths and weaknesses as an artist? Um, <laughs> oh gosh, I, a funny uh, Michael Scott from the Office joke came to my head, and I I won't say it, but I don't know. That show. Um, so I. Go ahead and say it. What, I should. Yeah. Uh, that I work too hard. Or, I don't know, something like that. Never mind. I don't want. Scotch it. I think uh, my ba my biggest strength is that um, I can um, adapt really well um, to different materials and circumstances, and I have a willingness and patience that. Um, makes it so skills that take a little bit of time to learn like i want to learn them or more process oriented like that doesn't um scare me um when it comes to my practice i don't mind taking time uh and then because in all other aspects of my life like i talk fast i I move fast, like I don't drive fast because that's scary. <laughs> but like, just like I always like when I was a kid, it was like Lindsay, you cannot be the first one to put your math test in because that's what's like, fast. Um, so I think in my practice, uh, I have I'm like gentle with myself and I let myself slow down, and I think that is more of a strength um, than what I could have thought as as a child, which could be a weakness because. You always think uh, you have to do so much all the time, or maybe it's because I come from like a workaholic father who like, like, like he wasn't around Christmas morning because he was at work. He wasn't around this, like this holiday because he was open up the coffee shop. The hours are the hours, and you know you. And so um, I think because of being raised like that, and then being able to turn that on at some point, and then also be able to slow down and enjoy the process and take my time as a strength. And I think a weakness is sometimes I do move too fast. <laughs> and I think um, that I'll know a material before I fully know it. And uh, then like, like when I was first teaching myself how to like paper mache with concrete, uh, yeah, when I was first, cause I had to teach myself how to like work with concrete in like a more paper mache way there was a big learning curve where every time I came back in the studio, there was a crack or there was something. And I'm just like, why does this keep happening? And, um, cause I had this like, uh, a fickle confidence when I first started using it, being like, I have this material, it's going to be fine. And then I kept being like a slap in the face, like, no, no, we're going to crack and you're going to still have to figure it out more. And so I think that, um, is my weakness, but because materials, don't let you get away with it. Um, it's it doesn't fully in, um, bleed through. To, it's usually just the beginning. Uh, but also, I think maybe another weakness is uh, I have like ADHD, <laughs> and <laughs> my attention span um, is crazy bad a lot of the time. <laughs> and so uh, I'm like working on like 10 pieces at once sometimes and uh maybe I'm not noticing and I'm going like wild on one piece and then I got splattered on a piece and I just get up uh-oh like it's just I I think because of I have to always be making so much work um sometimes yeah I'll tunnel vision on on something and then something else gets messed up or like right now I have a piece in my studio that's already sold 
and it's ready for where it's going to go. Uh, but I had to put like a layer of, cause it's going to be outside. I wanted to put like an extra layer of like outdoor polyurethane to coat it. So it was extra safe. And, um, I'm just waiting for the collector to say that when they're ready for install. And so I can't work in half of my studio because it's just right there. And I, what if I get something on it and I have to redo everything and it's just, um, because you yeah. can't move it. I can't. It's, I, I can't. That's the first. I can't let that sculpture by myself. It's oh, very large. Oh, um, yeah, and so it's kind of just I've stuck waiting. So it's yeah, it's funny. So like that's over there, and I know if I'm gonna work anywhere near it, I have to be like super aware of Do my body. Maybe put like a sheet over it or something. Yes, yes, that that's helpful too. But it's on because um, I needed to seal it in a way where I got a little bit underneath it, so it's on a stool. So uh, it's not on like something like if I hit it by accident with an elbow or my hip, like I think it's going to take like a good hit to, for it to fall. But like, I just don't trust myself if I get into like the headspace of just making big gestures to make the work. And then I'm just like, Oh shit. And it falls like, wouldn't be the first time. Uh, so I just I'm like, I'm just not going to go over there in front of the studio. And uh, yeah. So I think that's it right now. That's a huge weakness because like I can't work in half of my studio. It sucks. Yeah. So I'm working in the sculpture side, uh, and I'm working on this ramen noodle sculpture. Oh wow! <laughs> for uh, for this um, group show at Julie Martin Gallery at the end of February, uh, called Slow Noodles. Wow! Yeah, it's uh, it's gonna be fun. I've never worked with ramen as a material before, but I had this idea about working with a material that had the potential to like change over time, and since this show is called slow noodles and it's based off of um this woman's memoir cambodian refugee and like all her struggles and perseverance and resilience and um just through food like also through food and community and sharing um and so i just thought like slow noodles uh and then making like a ramen noodle sculpture would be a great metaphor because it's over the course of the opening reception there's going to be a hot plate with boiling water inside the sculpture that you can't see it but steam is going to be coming up through it so throughout the course of the reception it'll cook and then the sculpture is going to change over time and um i just felt like that is a great kind of like sort of like sisyphusian in the way where it's like you build this whole thing up and it just crumbles back down. But when you, it crumbles back down, it's edible. Like, and, uh, you know, you can nourishment, even though like ramen noodles, like the packets are not healthy at all. So it's not really nutritious, but this the idea of just like providing, um, but then, yeah, it's flower blooming. Mm -hmm. But then it's, it's really going down. <laughs> it's just gonna collapse in on itself. Um, yeah, so I'm really looking forward and a little nervous to see how that works out. Um, yeah, maybe that could be a strength and a weakness where I think of, I'm an idea guy. Like I always say that when like, I'm thinking of an idea or something where I love thinking of like cool, crazy concepts, but then like, how do you make it happen? And then just trying to figure it out. And so that could be a strength, but then also a weakness because like to figure it out in the way it should be figured out might take longer than the time you're allotted to figure it out. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, I mean, like, it, so it would be really cool to do, like, a whole conceptual, like, series on making work out of, like, materials that shift um, over time, like, exposed to steam Wax, or something. Rice. Yeah. 
exactly all of that, but I don't have the time. And this is a group show and this work isn't even like, is this a work? It's more of like a process experiment because I'm, because yes. I'm like, I'm friends with Julia. So she of course will let me mess around and see this play. Cause it's going to be a really cool, like performance esque um, sculptural piece. So that could be another strength weakness. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So do you have like a favorite medium? No. No. What would you say your top three are? Okay. Yeah, that's better. Um, wood. Well, a plant-based material. And I think that can encompass grass and wood. I guess I might have asked the wrong question. I guess out of sculptures, painting, installations, everything that you do artistically, mm -hmm. what would you say your top three, whatever subgenres, I guess you'd say? Or... Um, I like uh, sculpture a lot um, more because it's such a material process that I don't have to, my eyes uh, don't get as um, tired with it. Like one of my eyes is stronger than the other. So um, like I have a lazy eye, one could say. And if I'm staring at a piece for too long, I'll get like a migraine and it's terrible. And usually the paintings um, require that staring at it for um, you to really be able to like figure out how you can create a, like a, space on like this surface that has uncontrolled mark making all over it and so there's a lot of back and forth play of looking and then putting a mark and then stopping and then looking again and then like then having to like, force yourself to have, like not look at it so, so you get fresh eyes and um that process like i just grew up doing it and it's like muscle memory at this point but it like it's boring a little bit um where sculpture and materials and figuring out how to do something is so much more interesting to me. Um, like one of my sculptures in my last solo at Red Arrow was called Big Bag and um, trying to figure out how to get the, the, uh, the caning wood to wrap around the top handle in, in a, what, would be, what would appear to be an infinity wrap was really hard and then also figuring out how to paint it without getting paint on the other part of it because there was such a difference between the enamel um, finish of uh, the sculpture and then the wood caning uh, part was just matte and so trying to just make sure everything um, just wasn't sloppily done because when you're then caning the wood it's like you're weaving it so all the parts that are over another piece, there's no paint under there. So if something gets a little shifty, then you can see that. You can see the wood. So you need to like be so particular and um, just then fit, just all the figuring out and problem solving and um, also like also your hands get so dirty and like you can't touch anything. Um, you have to just like be 100% in it for like 20 minutes of like you're working with this like a concrete or a plaster or something that like there's a time limit on how much you can work with it before it gets unworkable so within that window 
you just have to be present and 100 percent and then after that you could take a break whatever wash your hands uh check your phone whatever smoke some weed whatever you want but that the, the attention that it requires uh especially for my adhd uh is really like it's great it's really helpful um because it it's like blocking everything out and so um yeah i feel like the sculptures require more of my like physical attention where the 2d works the wall works paintings whatever require so much more like visual work um that it it hurt like i think it's just a pain thing i think it just hurts my eyes a lot <laughs> and like my hands like my thumb comes out of its sockets and whatnot so um it's not like everything else doesn't hurt but i feel just like i get more mental i get more mental stimulation from the sculpture process yeah yeah dealing with it in your hands yeah how to put it together and yeah just and, the patience a lot of you have to zen yourself basically yeah. and um i think because i don't meditate in that traditional way of just like sitting there and focusing on breathing my meditation is to like do things that um test my patience and um i i think i like that is i really like to do that i really like testing myself in that way um there was a sculpture a couple sculptures um actually no there's a big one at my last solo it was called anapanasati which is sanskrit for mindful breathing which um is a little like a uh, little jab at my one of my closest friends bj because he was trying to get me to uh do that hoffman breathing practice which like complete i think it, it works it's great but uh, at the time i was just like so now I have to schedule my breathing. Are you fucking kidding me? Another thing. And uh, I just thought it was so funny. Um, so I was like, I don't think that's how it works for me. I think my meditation practices are in like just being the mindful in my actions and just like um, doing something that's annoying and frustrating and just being able to just keep going and stay stoic kind of throughout the whole process. Um, and so there was, Part of basket weaving especially with like chair caning wood is the wood has to be soaked soaking for like 24 hours before you can mess with it because you need to be able to bend it right. and so the whole time i was like weaving uh it was i think it ended up being 12 uh unfunctional baskets but they were connected like so there was like one like one thing here and then two baskets two baskets two baskets going down like it looks like rib cage and um each of those had to be suspended above me so the gravity would help pull it down and so the whole time i'm doing that my arms are up and so my arms are like a little shaky but um the water from the wood and this gross water because it's just stagnant sitting there with wood soaking in it um it gets like a film on it it's dripping on you and it's getting in your eyes in your mouth and it's disgusting but like you just persevere and you keep doing it and you have to trust the process and um, I really enjoy uh, kind of that like self-deprecation of that yeah. in a way. Um, yeah, where it's just- Like sacrifice. Yeah, and um, I kind I kind of like that because I, I like that kind of labor. Like I did farm work for a really long time. I like that repetitive, trust the process, like big picture kind of work because um, I think that's the stuff that requires so much more presence yeah. than anything else. And uh, the only way you can see it in its final final scene is by putting in that work and uh, how rewarding that is to actually like put in so much work and then like you have this beautiful thing to show for it. And 
how much more rewarding that is than if like like the like the big gestural drawing you know like i love that that has its place and but i just get i'm so much more interested in the sculptural stuff now <laughs> yeah moving around yeah yeah sitting one place doing the same thing yeah and just figure like and also like a lot of my paintings even now um i was trying to figure out how i can incorporate like more slowing down in my painting so that's why i started like stuffing and sewing into my paintings uh, my grandmother uh, her family when they came over um, they were tailors and so she like had a big sewing machine and like a lot of sewing was always going on um, so i like know how to sew so i would um, sew these big weird like patches onto the paintings and then stuff them with either stuffing or whatever i could find like i found a lot of fake fruit at turnip green and i stuffed one of them with fake fruit so i had all these weird like things coming like textures like in this thing that you don't know what these things are you just see like how it's hitting the fabric and the glare and how it's the shadows are working with it but um it was this, this whole other idea idea of like creating intrigue or mark making um but using more a more visceral approach to the t through the 2d by sewing into it because like when the painting's really big like you have to put the needle there and then go behind the painting pull it out go behind and it's, it's like it's a funny slow process and uh yeah i think um over of course of the couple like the last couple of years i've been doing that a lot more often and i think um i think i i think that's like how i've been trying to fall back in love with painting right by slowing myself down some of the mm -hmm. physical elements or whatever yeah so you've been in nashville since 2014 yes what initially brought you here um well i was up in uh, beacon new york farming on common ground farm and at the time it was like a really great opportunity where I got to live for free there and then work down the street. And the Dia Beacon was right around the corner. It's the largest collection of contemporary art in North America. A beautiful place. I was like looking after the season was up, I was looking for an apartment and some stay. But then I had a couple of friends living down here and they're like, wait, well, Lindsay, why don't you try Nashville? It's really cool. I'm like, that's it. It's really cool. And um, I like looked online and I found a Platone print shop. And that's a small nonprofit print shop. Um, at the time, they were on Fourth Ave. And so, when I came down to visit uh, Nashville and my friends here, and um, I interviewed with them, um, and yeah, uh, I, I spent some time in like Johannesburg with paper making and printmaking. And I come from a family of builders. My grandfather had like a tool shop that my uncles ran, and um, so I kind of like had all the things where I could teach paper making and I can could build a shop and so uh they hired me and a month later I moved down and I helped build a little paper mill attached to their print shop in the back um it was uh I don't know if you remember when Fonda Object decided to open a second location and it was on 4th Ave um it was the build it was the same building but just the on the left where Fonda Object was on the right and that's where one of the original turnip greens was too and uh, that's where I got like really close and then like with the turnip green folks and like their mission. Um, but anyway, my uh, paper mill was in the back and I had a little patio that um, like houseless people would sleep under and then use as a bathroom. So it wasn't always great. But I remember watching um, like the Music City Center being built as I would like 
pulling abaca sheets and um it was really cool i did some classes with like kids and like locals who wanted to learn the process and then uh they moved spaces because at the time you know it's kind of like you just do a leapfrog from one spot to another until like the rent or the building gets sold and the building that they moved into i built another one and while i was at a residency in nebraska um, the president of the print shop passed away uh, not suddenly, but kind of, to me, it was kind of sudden. She had cancer, and I didn't realize how bad it was progressing. But they, um, the board changed, and they had to make it financially sustainable. So they fired. Uh, they would just ask me they had to let me go, which I understood. No hard feelings, so whatever. And so that's what brought me down to Nashville, and I eventually uh, started working at a different print shop, and I became, like, head printer there for, um, like, was that, like, a T-shirt poster printmaking shop all water-based so it's like more eco-friendly and I was also like the only female on the automated press and always we all were like pitted against each other and we're given our stats every month to be like who's the best one and um because I come I came my dad was a workaholic I always had to push myself and push myself and so I like always like I'm I'm gonna make my prove myself and yeah and uh, I just decided when COVID hit I'm like yeah this I'm not I need to do that for myself. Like, I don't want to sacrifice myself for other people anymore. But yeah, that's what brought me down in Nashville for jobs, <laughs> paper making, all that awesome. stuff. Awesome. Yeah. What is something you would say you've learned living here? Um, I don't think it's. Okay, so, so, you know how, like, people are like, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I think um, it's not who you know, but who knows you and why. I think wow. that's way more important. Because this is such a small town and we all are so supportive of one another that if you're not lifting other people up with you, like it's, what's the point? So it's like, I would rather be known as someone who like being, and that's part of the community and someone who's like well-known in like New York or LA or whatever for my art. Like that's what being an artist in this town has taught me, the community, the supportiveness of the community is so much more important than your own stats as an artist in the art world. Right. Yeah. Being known amongst the community members instead of just being like world renowned for yeah. your art, being so detached from yeah. the community. Yeah. Yeah. And even just like you can be, you can look at the, like being a part of the community as like, um, like you're on a pedestal above them or, you can be down and be like, let's teach, let's learn together. Let's both do this. Do you need help with this? Do you want to come to my studio and help me with something? Because I know you're really good at this. And then I can show you how to, like, it's just, just make friends, like offer support and skill sharing and just, yeah, um, just lose the ego. And I think this is what this town has taught me a lot about that. Yeah, lose the ego. Yeah. Do you have a favorite venue, like for artwork or for music? here in town uh well i'm fr i'm friends with all the folks at the five spot so i always love the five spot and whatever they've got going on uh todd recently put like a tiny house in the back where he records and he'll let me go and smoke some weed back there so that's always <laughs> probably shouldn't say that <laughs> whatever um and then of course like red arrow i love every their whole catalog like what they do and who they show um alex over at um Elephant Gallery has a very uh, diverse and incredible 
program and lineup and is able to just like incorporate artists and like materials and concepts into like the fine art world that have really not been thought of too. Like they show quilty pleasures, like looking at quilts as like a fine art or conceptual art piece rather than like a functional thing. That's beautiful. I mean, that's been going on forever, but just like you see that show, there's like a quilted toilet and there's like, a, like just this, the way you get just to, how that gallery uses things and, and then smashes all the perspective that you think it should be and then shows it to you like that. I, that's, I really love that space a lot. Um, and all my friends that have studio spaces there, of course, it's such a welcoming spot. Um, and yeah, I feel like uh, the smaller spaces in the packing plant too have a lot of great stuff going on. That red 225 place, a red 225, that, that place has got some good stuff going on too. Okay, cool. What is some advice you'd give to someone who's going to move here and do art? Um, I would say uh, show up to the crawls. Go to the, yeah, go to the crawls, show up, uh, get involved, make friends, ask people what they're doing. Um, and don't talk about yourself unless asked. And I think that last part is probably just my own uh, advice, just because um, uh, I think I think it's uh, as I feel like if you ask someone something, you want to know that. But if someone tells you it, you already you assume the other person wants to know it. I'd rather um, yeah, I'd rather someone get to know me because they want to get to know me in the work rather than me just shove it down their throat. <laughs> right. Yes. That's a very good point. Don't talk about yourself unless asked. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I haven't heard anyone say that, but oh. it was very good. <laughs> <laughs> so um, reflecting back on when you first started as mm -hmm. an artist, what is one of the biggest challenges you had to overcome and how did you get through it? Um, hmm. I think it's uh, the grief process of like the loss of my parents. Uh, both happened suddenly, ten years apart, and um, getting through that and trying to maintain some type of like sustainable practice um, has been really difficult. And I don't think I'm really through it in any sense. But uh, that the journey of trying to figure out how to navigate through it has been uh and what my practice has been very helpful in that navigation nice what would you say is your biggest personal growth from last year to this year oh gosh um hmm. let's say i've uh gotten i th i think i i don't I'm, i don't grow, go out as much i like i'm just very much into working in the studio and on my practice. So I feel like just taking myself more seriously in that way, um, applying to more shows um, that, like just being more thoughtful about what shows I apply to and not just applying to something because you can. Um, yeah. Okay, awesome. So how can people support you as an artist? Oh, um, they can find me 
on social media um, with my Instagram, Lindsay Davis underscore, and my website is lindsaydavis.com. Um, I have smaller works um, that are for, because I usually work larger scale when it comes to gallery or museum shows, but I do have smaller pieces that are way more affordable. If anyone um, has a hankering to do any collecting, um, yeah, I have uh, prints, small paintings, drawings, sculptures, all available. And uh, people can email me directly for any um, pieces or interest that they want to see. Awesome. And if people want to help you financially, like give you money, how do they do that? Uh, they can just Venmo me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd much rather have someone like buy a piece. I don't right. want to just have someone's money. Like I think uh, it's more important for me to like for them to gain something from it, like just something to look at. Even if it's put it in your bathroom so you can take a poop and look at something, just anything. Like just right. I don't want to just take someone's money. Yeah. Or if the skill trade, even like I, I teach paper making, I teach, um, uh, like I do seed embedding in paper and like flat, like, like embedding in paper, uh, like uh, pulp painting, um, woodworking. Yeah. If anyone wants to learn a new skill, I can very much teach that. Okay. Yeah. I just know some people who really like certain artists, they want to be like, I don't know how to help them. I, mean, mm -hmm. I can buy their art, but I could also give them money because I believe in their vision. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so sometimes I feel like there are people that want to do that. Yeah. Well, then my Venmo is Lindsay Dash Davis. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. So how do you consume media? Do you have like favorite YouTube videos or do mm. you... um, like media, like when it pertains to art or like just anything like music, like oh, film, um... You know, yeah. TV shows. Yeah, I uh, I love movies. Yesterday, I actually like watched a bunch of VHSs, and um, it was uh, what was it? Point Break with oh, yeah. uh, Patrick Swayze and Keanu. Keanu oh my gosh! Uh, then I watched um, uh, uh, what was it? Um, Blue Velvet. Oh yeah, yeah. Scorsese, right? No, yeah. no, no. Uh, no, Lynch, no. Lynch, David Lynch, David Lynch, yeah. Um, and then I watched uh, the Flintstones, which I forgot that that actor who's in John Goodman. No, not John Goodman. Um, person who plays Barney. No, uh, the person who uh, plays the evil corporate guy. because oh. he's the same guy who is the detective in Twin Peaks, and he's also the same young protagonist in Blue Velvet. Oh. So it was just like, and then I watched Goodfellas, which also oh, had John yeah. Goodman in it. So I had like this weird, funny, and these are all my VHS collections. So it's just like, and like that, in rewind it, whatever. But I just found that I was kept watching like funny actor related roles, just like meandering through. Um, I read a lot. Um, currently reading Shantaram, um, which is like the life story of some like. Australian felon who was in like the India mafia. This book is like very over 700 pages and it's been passed around through my friend group and uh, it's now my turn. So, wow. I'm redoing that. It's like infinite jest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but then I'm also reading the new okay. ocean Viong uh, book. Um, time is a mother and he is really great. Like poet. Um, he's, a uh, Ah, 
think second generation Viet Vietnamese um, refugee. And he has, um, I remember going, visiting home um, in New York and uh, I went to this like little, my friend go, would go to this like art share event and it was like all just people who knew each other and they were just like sharing new work, new things that they were working on. And it was right after this ocean was published in the New York Times and he was there and he read a new poem and I was like, the fuck is this guy? This is amazing. And then I fit, found his books and I just fell in love. And because I like heard him read his poetry, I like know his voice in my head and it was just really cool. Um, I love his books. And then I'm reading like, you know, self-help book, Resilient Grieving, some of that. Um, and then uh, <laughs> this is another big book that I am very slowly like in like slug pace making my way through. Uh, but it's Ian McGillchrist's um, The Master and the Emissary. And it's like right brain, left brain. And then also, um, yeah, I'm always, uh, and then I have just like educational books when it comes to like gestaltism and philosophy. And there's this book uh, by Rodrigo, Rodrigo, Rodrigo Kiran Kiroga. And he is a professor over in England, London, I want to say. And um, he wrote this book called The Forgetting Machine. And it's like um, very, very contemporary um, brain science. And he has like proof to like show how like electrons and memories like go hand in hand. And he uses like art to show certain things. And um, yeah, so I really like educational books and then like poetry books and self-help and then just stories. Awesome. <laughs> and then movies. Yeah, I like a movie. I started, just started watching Fargo, the new oh, the, yeah. the oh, show. So. Yeah, oh, cool. like, of course the movie. Love that. But I say. Uh, so good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, is there anything that you would like to add that I might not have asked you about? No, this has been such an in-depth interview. I loved it. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I have one more question for yes. you. Yes. What is something absurd you ever do? Oh, gosh. Absurd. Um, oh, gosh. <sighs> what's, what's absurd? Can you give me an example? I like vacuuming. Oh, okay. Vacuuming. Um... <laughs> well, uh, out of sheer boredom over the holidays, I took all of my cabinets off of my kitchen and scraped and like put the remover, paint remover and scraped them and sanded them just to seal them with wax and realize that um, I didn't do it correctly and I just like do it again. <laughs> but uh, that's, I think that's an absurd thing where I'll just like start a project and not really know how I'm going to finish it. Um, but scraping, uh, something uh, gosh i think i could think of something better than that though um hmm. i have like weird mannequins in my garden <laughs> i collect mannequins like buried no no kind of like but i have like the, just the torso and the head of a female and so she's just like hanging out in the garden and like stuff like that <laughs> like I'll, awesome. I'll do weird stuff like that um yeah uh i don't know i can't think of anything too crazy okay cool well yeah. thank you for coming over and doing this My pleasure. and being on the podcast and yeah. it was thank you for yeah. having. awesome